Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Robert Davis. Robert, aka The Healthy Skeptic, is an award-winning health journalist whose work has appeared on CNN, PBS, WebMD, and in the Wall Street Journal. The author of three previous books on health, he hosts the Healthy Skeptic video series in which he dissects the science behind popular health claims. Robert holds an undergraduate degree from Princeton University, a master's degree in public health from Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health, and a PhD in health policy from Brandeis University, where he was a Pew Foundation Fellow. In the episode, he shares why a lot of popular weight loss advice is just plain wrong, numbers we should be aware of besides just calories, how companies try to deceive you using something called health halos, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to take a minute to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I order on Thrive versus going to my local grocery store, I save at least $20 each order, and I'm able to place every Thrive order from the comfort of my couch via their website or app. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. And one more quick thing. If you've been yo-yo dieting for years, but nothing you've tried has helped you keep the weight off long-term, I'm so happy you're hearing this right now. Outside of hosting this podcast, I help people lose weight for the last time without giving up carbs, counting every calorie, eating clean 24-7, or other unsustainable extremes. Unlike diets, apps, and programs that only provide short-term results, and suck the fun out of life, I help you make evidence-based habit changes and mindset shifts so you can drop those pesky pounds for good, feel completely in control around food, and start showing up as the trimmest, healthiest, most confident, most energized version of yourself. You can learn more about my programs at thehealthinvestment.com, and please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions at all. I always love hearing from you. All right, it's time to hear from Robert. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
Robert. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Well, thank you, Brooke. It's great to be with you. I was just telling you off air that uh, the person who I think helps you with publicity and PR reached out to me. And typically, I guess when you hit a certain number of episodes, people start finding you more. Or I don't know. Ever since I hit episode 100, that's been happening. But I was telling you that a lot of people spewing a lot of nonsense and BS have been reaching out to me. And so I'm always skeptical, but I read your book with a fine tooth comb and I could not be more excited to have you here today because I know that everything you say is going to really benefit my audience. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be able to talk to you about it. Could you share just with all of us your story and your background and specifically what led you to become a journalist and then to focus on health and weight loss? Sure. Well, I am, I, first of all, I have a personal interest in health and wellness. It's something, it's an interest I developed in college. Avid exerciser, try to watch what I eat. And so that really uh, led to my decision to be a health journalist to cover all aspects of health and wellness. Um, and then on top of that, I have training in public health and epidemiology. So what I've tried to do is to take my personal interest, combine that with my academic training, and use that uh, to inform my reporting. So uh, in uh, the work I've done, this book I've written, the reporting I do, the previous books I've written, what I try to do is to actually look at the science, to draw in my training in public health, to actually look at the studies to help readers and viewers understand what the science really says, as opposed to the claims that we often hear. Because you know, there's so much confusing information, contradictory information, hype, misinformation when it comes to health, particularly around diet and fitness. And so what I try to do is help set the record straight so that uh, people can make more informed decisions for themselves. I like to say, I'm not here to tell people what to do, what diet to follow or what to do. That's up to them to decide what's best for them. But what I hope I can do is to give them honest, reliable information about what the research actually shows so they can make more informed decisions for themselves. I imagine too, as a journalist, it's not even just claims that you're seeing on Google anymore. It's people finding their friends and their cousins, aunt or whoever doing random stuff on Facebook and social media. I just feel like all of the messages out there now just bombard us. And it's really overwhelming to figure out what actually works and to sift through all the noise. And then as I'm sure you've seen, people just end up wasting a lot of time, money and energy on stuff that doesn't work, but they have the best intentions. And it just constantly breaks my heart to see that happening. Absolutely. You know, because in, in my view, we can make a big difference in our lives if we follow certain steps to make ourselves healthier. But at the same time, we can, uh, as you say, waste time, money and effort on the wrong things so that not only is that uh, diverting attention away from things that actually work, but in some cases, those things actually cause harm. Mm -hmm. So we can make matters worse by doing the wrong thing. So that's why it's so important that we, uh, that we follow the science and figure out what things are actually going to help us as opposed to what we often hear, which is a lot of hype and nonsense. Yeah, follow the science is music to my ears. I love <laughs> evidence-based tips and tricks, whatever you wanna call them, but I love, love bringing science into this podcast. So I would just ask though, why is it do you think we are fed so much misinformation about weight loss? Well, you know, one reason, uh, you know, very simple reason is money. 
if you look at the weight loss industry uh, and uh, annually, the weight loss industry is estimated to be more than $60 billion. And that was during COVID. So I'm sure it's more than that this year and will be in future years. And so there, uh, there are a number of players in that industry um, who benefit from the perpetuation of this misinformation, whether we're talking about people pushing particular diets, people selling dietary supplements that supposedly help you burn fat or uh, lose weight, uh, you know, people who run uh, fitness facilities that say, come join and lose 30 pounds in 30 days. Um, the list goes on and on of people in the, in the uh, weight loss industry that stand to benefit from continuing to tell us these, uh, these things that are not true uh, because they profit from them. So that's certainly a big factor. Um, the other, I think, and, and is that, and I talk about this in my book, um, is there are a number of biases. And you know, all of us can be biased, whether we're health professionals or lay people, but there are certain biases I talk about that help perpetuate some of these misleading ideas. For, I'll just give you a couple of examples. One is what's known as the bandwagon effect. I mean, if, if everybody believes something, then we tend to, to join in. So if everybody around us tends to believe that the solution to weight loss is going on keto, then they're like, oh, that sounds good, and we believe that too. Um, there, there are things related to that uh, call, called allegiance biases, where people say, okay, I'm, I believe that a paleo diet is the way to go, or I believe a vegan diet is the way to go. And people get into these silos, and they tend to fixate on these particular approaches, and they won't let them go. No matter what the evidence says, no matter how much contrary evidence there is, they tend to dismiss that, something we call confirmation bias and to stick with whatever it is they believe. And you mentioned earlier social media, these kinds of allegiances tend to get reinforced through the echo chambers of social media. We're surrounded in social media by like-minded people who tend to reinforce these beliefs. And so that I think also these biases that, and again, they can exist not only among lay people, but also professionals who tend to be zealots for some particular approach that may not have a lot of science behind it. So I think biases across society help, again, perpetuate these ideas that don't necessarily have strong scientific support. Right. It's almost as if nutrition, weight loss approaches, health, it's become sort of religious in a way where we're in our own camp and that's all we kind of want to hear. And we don't want to hear from the other camps. And we just kind of push through with that. Like you said, even if science comes out new research comes out and says something contrary to what we've believed in the past. Um, and that's not really how science is supposed to go. You know, you're supposed to constantly be open to amending previous beliefs and changing your mind based on new research. Right. I, 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 I absolutely right. And I would say that your analogy to religion is perfect. I sometimes like to say that people's approach to weight loss and diet is like religion of, for which there are many different denominations. Are you in the keto denomination? Are yeah. you in the intermittent fasting denomination? Are you in the low fat denomination? And on and on and on. And people tend to believe and to stick with whatever denomination uh, it is that they happen to have joined. And so then they, they don't want to be part of the other. They think the other part is wrong. And so, yes, you're right that this science is very different from religion in the sense that we need to be open to information as it evolves, because science is all about getting closer to the truth. And as we learn more, we change our ideas because we are more informed. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the denominations are just so extreme. You know, you've mentioned keto a couple of times. If you're a part of that denomination, then 
you're never supposed to eat bread ever again. And then that gets pretty unsustainable, I would say. Um, I mean, right. it works for some people. I'm just like, you. if somebody is thriving on keto and they're loving it and like you do you, you know, but if you are the person who has struggled with dieting and you never found something that works, that's the type of person I work with. And something else you said really stood out to me how these companies are benefiting, you know, gyms or supplement companies off of people constantly returning and using their stuff. I can't tell you, I'm sure you have as well, how many people I've talked to that have tried these juice cleanses and they lose 30 pounds only to gain the 30 pounds right back the second they stop. And that's sadly what these companies want to happen. They want to kind of get you addicted to their stuff so that you have to keep putting more and more money into the fads, supplements, whatever. And it's not profitable for them if you're actually successful and you lose the weight and keep it off, which is again, just very sad. Absolutely. And that's exactly the way, the reason this industry is so large and continues to get larger all the time because people keep coming back in many cases for the same thing or similar things that fail over and over and over again. Yeah. Wow. You say that calorie counting is overrated for weight loss. And I would love to hear you touch on that a bit more because I agree, but I would love, always love other people on here. Not that I'm a zealot and attached to my, (laughs) my particular beliefs, but I'd love to hear you kind of defend that in your own words. Sure. Well, there are a couple of reasons for for that, that I say that. First of all, calories do matter. I mean, it's just a biological fact that they matter. If you take in uh, too many calories, then you're going to gain weight. And if you reduce calories by to a large extent, you will lose weight. But there, there's some caveats there. First of all, counting calories is very, very hard to do precisely. Um, you know, we see those big numbers at the top of the box on the nutrition label. You know, a food has 124 calories and we tend to think, oh, well, that's precise. Well, it's not. Under law in the United States, calorie counts can be off on boxes by as much as 20%. So right there, you're not getting an exact number. And that's for foods that actually have a calorie count. We know that plenty of things we eat, we don't know how many calories they have. We have to estimate or use an app, which is far from precise. If you go to someone's house, if you make a food yourself, if you're at a restaurant that doesn't have calorie counts. So it's very hard to count calories precisely. And the other side of the equation, of course, is how much energy you expend, how many calories you burn. And that's equally difficult to know precisely because if you wanna be in calorie deficit, you need to know how many calories your body needs and how many you're burning. And you can have apps and other things, but again, it's very hard to do precisely. So I like to say that calories count, but counting calories often doesn't work. And so over the long-term, people find that it's very frustrating. It's hard to do exactly. And so uh, it's a strategy that for many people does not work in the long run. Another factor, though, that has to be considered is that our weight is about more than how many calories we put into our bodies. There are other factors that play a role. For example, our genetics play a role, of course. We all know those people that we can't stand who can eat whatever they want, and they never gain an ounce. And then there are other people that can eat the same amount of food, and they gain weight. And so our genetics, and there's studies that show this, that genetics matter, and they tend to make a difference from person to person as to how susceptible they are to weight gain or weight loss. Um, There's emerging evidence that the uh, microbes in our gut, the so-called microbiome matters. Different people have different mixes of bacteria in their guts and studies, emerging studies show this can make a difference in how many of the calories that we consume are actually absorbed. And it's the calories that we absorb that matter when it comes to weight gain or weight loss. 
And then thirdly, one last factor to mention is our metabolisms, the way that we respond to changes in our weight. As we cut calories and we lose weight, our metabolisms will actually slow down. And so what that means is that in order to maintain that weight loss, in order to keep losing weight, we need to keep reducing the number of calories we're consuming. So again, the bottom line is that it's very complex in terms of the way that our bodies work, the way that uh, weight regulation works, and it's far more complicated than simply how many calories you're consuming. I like to say it's a good idea to keep a general eye on how many calories you're consuming, but don't fixate on it because there are other factors, other things to consider that are going to determine uh, what your weight is based on how much you're eating and what you're eating. Right. And then what about other numbers to be mindful of on nutrition labels, added sugar, fiber, protein? Can you speak right. to those All those things are equally important, if not more so, to pay attention to. And I think uh, you're right. So we need to look at the amount of added sugar. That's important. We need to look at fiber. Fiber is important because it helps fill us up and it's going to make us uh, less hungry and perhaps eat less. And then protein, the same thing applies there. Protein can be filling and, and help satisfy you. So, those, so, so simply looking at calories may mean that, yes, you get the lowest calorie food possible, but that food is not very filling. It's not going to sustain you, and you're going to be hungry in 30 minutes or an hour and eat more. So it may be that a food that has somewhat more calories is a better option because it has more fiber, because it has more protein, because it has less sugar and it's more healthful. So, so again, we need to look at foods uh, as, as sort of a whole package rather than simply looking just to the calories. You brought up a good point too of people who kind of rely on these calorie counting apps. I mean, sure, you can log things into them pretty easily that are in packages, but then when you go outside of packages and you're eating real whole foods, it becomes harder to log those things. So I know I've had clients say that they just tend to stick to the package things because they're easier to log into the calorie counting apps, but then they're avoiding the real whole foods, because when you mix those up, it's harder to come up with the calorie count. So I think that can be an issue too. Of we should really be eating more of the real whole foods and fewer of the packaged items. Not that you can't eat anything packaged, but you know, there's these, all these little intricacies that come into calorie counting that I think, like you say, are very important to consider. Yeah. And in fact, what you just said uh, is exactly right. There are studies that, in a, and I talk about one in my book, people were asked about their experiences with keeping food journals. In those journals, they were asked to track calories. And people did exactly what you're describing, what your clients have said, where they said it was just easier to eat a processed food because I could scan in the number of calories. It was too hard to figure out the calories and other kinds of foods. And that is the exact opposite, as you say, of what we want people to be doing. If you're eating more processed foods, even if they're, quote, you know, weight-friendly foods, those foods are not a, a, a great way to be managing your weight and can actually undermine your effort. So yes, counting calories can be very counterproductive in that and other ways. Yeah. And I think the message out there, again, as we talked about, is just that you have to be counting calories and that just could not be farther from the truth. I say something very similar to what you say. I say calories count, but that doesn't mean you have to count calories to lose weight. Um, so yeah, we're very, very aligned on that. I know that you're also skeptical about posting calorie counts on menus, and that's something that's started happening. I think even in some places, if not all places, it's, it's required, I know, or fast yes. food it's required. Yes. Uh, so can you touch on that a bit? Yeah. So it's required by law. If, if, uh, 
chains if, if uh, companies have enough locations. Um, and so you would think, okay, well, this is a good idea. It helps people know how many calories they're consuming, so they'll consume fewer. And what the studies have shown, study after study, and, and sort of meta-analyses, which put together uh, data from various studies, have shown that actually menu, uh, menu counts, uh, calorie counts, don't work as intended. So the people that are most need to be paying attention to the counts often don't look at the counts and uh, don't lower their calorie intake. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, it's speculated sometimes that if people see, oh, the French fries have 500 calories, and then next to that, your uh, normal intake is 2,000 calories, someone may say, oh, well, that's under my limit for the day. That's okay. I can get the French fries, whereas otherwise they might not have gotten the French fries. That's just speculation on some people's part as to why they may not work. But the point is that they uh, don't necessarily have their intended effect. Now, again, for people that want to keep a general eye on how many calories they're consuming, yeah, I think they can be helpful, but they're certainly not a panacea, and they haven't made a big difference in terms of people being able to reduce their, their weight. Um, I think the other part of that also is that for people that maybe are prone to eating disorders, some evidence suggests that the calorie counts can be harmful because they further exacerbate people's fixation on calories and unhealthy relationship with food. So there's also a downside to them as well. So, so my overall take is not necessarily that they're a bad thing, but just that when they're held up as sort of an answer to the obesity epidemic, um, there's not evidence necessarily to support that. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people when they decide, let's say January 1st, I'm gonna lose 20 pounds this year, their first action is to join a gym and to just start exercising a ton but you speak about how exercise actually isn't the most important thing for weight loss. And I'd love if you could elaborate on that as well. Yeah, and, I, and let me say first, I am an avid exerciser myself. I think everybody needs to be exercising, moving your body in some way, however you can. I like to say if there were a pill that could do everything exercise can do from decreasing your risk of heart disease and cancer to improving your mood and your sex life and everything else in between, we'd all be clamoring for it. So yes, I'm not, everybody needs to move their body and exercise. It's the closest thing we have to a fountain of youth. But the, the irony is that the one thing that exercise is not so great at doing that is helping us lose weight is the number one reason that many people go to the gym or try to exercise. And so what the studies actually show is that exercise does not burn the typical kind of exercise most of us do would be going for a brisk walk, taking a yoga class, um, which is great for your health, great for your heart, which by all means you should do, doesn't burn enough calories to make a big dent in your weight. And yet we hear over and over, you know, it's important uh, to exercise to lose weight. And so I think it's the, the key here is that people need to go in managing ex their expectations. They need to go in understanding what exercise can and cannot do. Because, you know, if people go in expecting the sort of normal exercise to peel off pounds and they find it doesn't work, they may give up on exercise and say, well, this isn't working. This isn't helping me lose weight. So I'm just going to give up on exercise. And that's completely the wrong thing. People need to be exercising, but they need to go in managing their expectations. So exercise, the bottom line does not burn a lot of calories. Uh, and, and it is not that great a way to lose weight. Um, if you, if you ramp up your exercise and, and say burn five to 600 calories a day, which is a lot of exercise five days a week, you maybe can start burning enough calories to lose weight. But again, your body's going to compensate just as it does if you're cutting calories. So over time, your metabolism is going to slow and you're going to you're gonna need to ramp up your exercise more and more to keep burning the same number of calories and to keep losing weight. So the, the point is that 
it's just overall not a great way. Now, let me just say one other thing, and that is, even though it's not a great way to help you lose weight, studies do show that it, exercise is an important when it comes to keeping weight off and preventing uh, the regain of weight that you've lost. So exercise is crucial in that way. And we're not talking about huge amounts of exercise. We're talking about the amount that's typically recommended for good health. That's 30 minutes a day uh, of, of cardio exercise, aerobic exercise, and then a couple of days a week of resistance training. Um, so it's not a huge amount of exercise, but that's important if you want to keep weight off. Um, and so there are certainly other benefits it, and, and exercise can actually reduce the health risks associated with obesity so that um, there's debate about how much, but certainly it can make you healthier and reduce risk of diabetes and heart disease and other things that are associated with, with obesity. So there are benefits there as well. So I think it's important, again, to understand what exercise can and cannot do uh, when we are, are, are engaging in a, in, a, in, a, in a physical activity program. I'm wondering if you've seen research about to the psychological stuff that can happen to us when we exercise. I know that um, I can't remember where I read it, or maybe it was somebody I spoke to on the podcast, but they were saying, let's say you decide you want to lose weight and you start, uh, I don't know, doing the Peloton for 45 minutes, five times a week. Again, awesome for overall health. Love that. But for specifically for weight loss, somebody can then get off the Peloton and then think either consciously or subconsciously, I just burned so many calories. So I have to be sure that I eat more today to kind of make up for it and fuel my body. So then somebody may actually be in a calorie surplus, even though they're doing exercise, just because they're consciously or subconsciously eating more to make up for that exercise. Have you read or seen any studies about that? Yes, there is research showing exactly that. that, that and there, there are two things that work there. One is, as you say, they're just, it's, there's a psychological component that fee, people feel either they uh, need to eat more or that they are entitled to eat more because they just worked out hard at the gym. And so there's studies that show that if you people exercise and they uh, are asked to estimate how many calories they burn, they're taken into a buffet and asked to order food, they end up taking a lot more food from the buffet uh, calorie-wise than in terms of how many calories they actually burned in the gym. So mm. that's, that's a real danger. And yeah. so the other part of that, though, of course, is that exercise for many people, particularly if you do a lot, can ramp up your appetite. So even if you don't intend to be eating more, you're biologically driven to eat more because, again, this is how our bodies work to keep us from wasting away. That's, we're, that's a built-in mechanism when we burn a lot of calories so that people's appetites actually increase from a lot of exercise often. So that's another factor that may drive people to eat more. But you're right. In the end, it ends up being a wash. People may consume all the calories or even more calories than they actually burn from the exercise. Yeah. I just think it's such a powerful mindset shift. I know for myself um, and clients as well, just to exercise for all the reasons you mentioned, sleep better, you know, mental health, mood booster, prevent heart disease down the road, prevents cancer. I mean, it's just like you said, a miracle pill really exercises for so many things, but to exercise for those reasons and just take weight loss out of the equation, never think I'm exercising to burn off calories I ate or calories I intend to eat. Just remove those thoughts from your mind, exercise for all those other things. And then when it comes to weight loss, turn to your diet and nutrition and really kind of dial that in. Right. Exactly. What about intermittent fasting? I know you mentioned keto. I know this is kind of hand in hand and a lot of people are saying 
there's fabulous research and the intermittent fasting is something everybody should be doing. And it's kind of the miracle thing that we haven't been doing forever. And then other people are, people are saying it's not that big of a deal. What is your take on that from the research? So what the research shows is that intermittent fasting can result in weight loss, but not necessarily more, greater weight loss than a standard calorie restricted diet. So uh, it's, it, yes, it can help people. We all know people that swear by it that say it's helped them lose weight, but it's certainly not a miracle. It's certainly not a shortcut. It's certainly not necessarily any better than standard ways of, of losing weight. On top of that, there's some research that suggests that it may have a downside in the sense that it results in more muscle loss than a standard uh, calorie restricted diet. And that's a bad thing because when we lose weight, we don't want to lose muscle. We want to lose fat. Muscle is what we want to preserve because muscle actually burns more calories than fat. And muscle also is something we especially need as we get older to, uh, to fend off feebleness and to keep us active. So, so definitely that's a potential problem when it comes to intermittent fasting. Um, so I think that the point here is that if intermittent fasting works for people, if they're able to go, go for long stretches without eating, and they can sustain that, that's fine. But I do think that you know, the problem for most people, as with any diet, is what is, the, uh, what is the sustainability of it? Can you sustain this over the long term? Because again, any approach, just about any approach can help you lose weight in the short term, whether it's fasting or keto or whatever it is. But the question is, can you sustain this for the long term and does it work over the long term? And with intermittent fasting, we don't have evidence that it's going to be effective over the long, long term or how many people can really maintain this for the long term. Mm -hmm. For someone who thinks, oh, I have never really been hungry in the morning and I kind of hate eating breakfast, but I was told for years that I have to eat breakfast. This could be great news, you know, that you could skip breakfast and maybe have two larger meals later in the day. But for the person who wakes up in the morning and that's their favorite thing and they love having that coffee with a breakfast, that's really bad news if they have to do that forever. <laughs> Right. And I think the problem, again, is that when people hear, oh, this is what I have to do, and it doesn't align with their preferences and the way their body works and all the rest, and the diet doesn't work because you say they like to eat breakfast in the morning and they can't, or whatever the case may be, and then the diet doesn't work, intermittent fasting or whatever diet doesn't work, they blame themselves. They say, well, obviously, it worked for my friend. It worked for people I saw online. It's not working for me. I'm a failure. And I'm, I'm, and I, they feel this sense of uh, self-blame and shame when, in fact, that shouldn't be the case. The problem is the diet. The problem is not them. But that's the problem with people going into whatever diet it is and having these high expectations and thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And then it doesn't work. And they blame themselves. And so I think across the board, whether it's intermittent fasting or anything else, if people are going to try these things, they need to go in with the right expectations and know that if it doesn't work, it's not because of them. It's just simply because that diet, that particular approach is not a match with their preferences and their lifestyle and in uh, their bodies. Mm -hmm. I love how you interject throughout your book, little myth or truth boxes. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm always a sucker for the little interjections in <laughs> books. And <laughs> I love the way you set it up, but I'd love to tackle a few. Um, first one being that gluten promotes weight gain. Yes. So that's something we hear all the time. Now, gluten, as we know, is a protein uh, found in wheat, barley, and rye. And people that have, have uh, celiac disease definitely should not eat gluten because gluten is harmful to those folks. There are other people who have gluten sensitivity, and there's no definitive test for this, but they find that they don't feel good when they eat gluten. And so they find that on a trial and error basis, they cut out gluten, they feel better. But so gluten, so cutting out gluten may be beneficial for them. 
But when it comes to weight, there's no evidence, no evidence that just cutting out gluten is going to help people lose weight. And yet we see all the time these foods that say gluten-free and people expect them to be uh, weight-friendly when in fact there's no evidence that they necessarily are. And in fact, in some cases, these gluten-free foods may have more calories, they have more sugar, less fiber than their gluten-containing counterparts. So you may be worse off eating some of these packaged uh, gluten-free foods than you would the regular foods. Mm. And I think a lot of people possibly lose weight when they do gluten-free because they're cutting out a lot of the packaged foods. If they're doing like a real whole foods, gluten-free diet, it could just be the calorie deficit from cutting out all the packaged foods. Not necessarily, it's not the gluten, it's probably just the calorie deficit. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. The next one is a good one. Fruit is fattening. Yeah. So we hear this all the time, particular diets, keto being one, uh, discouraged eating fruit because fruit contains sugar. Um, but what this doesn't really take into account is that yes, fruit contains sugar, but that sugar is absorbed slowly because of the fiber in the fruit. And so studies show that eating fruit is not associated with weight gain. Even fruits that are higher in sugar, things like apples or pears, um, are not necessarily associated with weight gain uh, because of the fiber, because we tend to absorb the sugar and, and we don't, we don't, we're not gonna eat 20 pears, you know, we're gonna eat one pear, one apple, so that we're not gonna overeat fruit either. And it tends to be filling. So, so fruit, the bottom line is that fruit is associated actually with weight, uh, weight control, successful weight control. Now, the one asterisk there is that fruit juice, however, is not. Fruit juice actually is associated with weight gain. And you think about the difference. Fruit juice is, doesn't have fiber and you're getting a lot of sugar and more calories in drinking fruit juice. So uh, fruit juice is an exception. Fruit juice is different from whole fruit when it comes to weight gain. So um, the bottom line is that fruit is good, fruit juice not so good when it comes to weight control. I can't remember who said it, but I remember seeing it probably on social media somewhere. Somebody was saying, you know, apples, pears, these things aren't the cause of our obesity epidemic. You know, to, you're rarely going to find one real whole food that's to blame for the crisis we have in the country. It's really all of the Franken foods. And like you mentioned, labeling things gluten-free and giving things these health halos. That's really what we should be focusing on, not not pour a little fruit. <laughs> right. Right. And, and again, many diets will tell you don't eat fruit and people sort of tend to think of fruit as the enemy and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Another good myth or truth busting uh, interjection you had was calorie counts on cardio machines and fitness trackers are accurate. Yes. So people, you know, every, all of us see, we go to the gym or people that go to the gym and you see these numbers on the machines that tell you how many calories you're burning and think, oh, great. I burned 539 calories. And the problem is that how many calories you burn, this goes back to what we discussed earlier, really depends on a number of different factors, depends on your age, your gender, your fitness level, all kinds of things that aren't necessarily taken into account by these, uh, these machines. And so they're, they're, they're at best estimates and often estimates that are off. So some studies show that these uh, estimates on these machines are off by as much as 20% because a lot of these things are not taken into consideration. I'll just give you one example people don't often think of. Um, if you are a, a beginner at exercise, let's say you're just starting to, run, to walk or run on the treadmill, um, you actually are going to burn more calories than if you're an experienced treadmill walker or runner because you're going to be less efficient 
with your movements if you're just learning how to do it properly. So that's something that may be surprising to people, but someone who's an experienced walker running on treadmill actually is going to burn fewer calories because you've learned to be more efficient. So that's just one of many factors that play a role in how many calories you actually burn when you use these machines. Um, so the, the other thing I talk about in that section is wearable fitness trackers, things, you know, watches and so forth that can uh, help you see how many calories you're burning. And again, studies show these are not terribly accurate. One study looked at a bunch of trackers and found that they were anywhere from like 25 to 90% off. And so um, again, I think that we just need to take these with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean you completely ignore them. If you see changes from day to day to day in terms of calorie burning, that may be a good indicator that you're ramping up your activity, that you're working out more vigorously, but certainly uh, I wouldn't take the numbers uh, as gospel. There are so many numbers too, if you wear, let's say an Apple watch, I always like to say it's kind of fun for people, I think, to sort of gamify their steps. Some people love that. So let's say your goal is five to 7,000 steps a day. Just focus on that piece of it and kind of ignore the calories burned part and just, you know, focus on that fun goal you have for yourself or maybe a challenge you have with a partner or a friend to hit 5,000 steps a day. It's five to 7,000 steps a day. Um, that can be a way to use the number in kind of a more beneficial way. Right. Absolutely. Something else you say and kind of speak to is that weight status is contagious. Can you touch on that? Yeah. So there's some interesting research that shows that certain health behaviors um, really spread like viruses. And there've been studies that looked at smoking and other behaviors. And so some of these have looked at weight as well. And what the studies have found, and maybe this, this won't be too surprising to listeners because it seems intuitively uh, plausible that uh, when we're uh, with people who weigh more, we tend to weigh more. So whether it's our significant others, our friends, uh, communities where we live, we tend to weigh more. We tend, we're more likely to be obese. And the converse of that is when people tend to be leaner or to be losing weight, we tend to do the same thing. And so it's an interesting body of research that shows that these behaviors around weight can, again, be sort of spread from person to person and through communities. Um, and through families and so forth. And so the, the, the take home message from that research is that um, if you, one way perhaps to focus, to help you uh, focus on being at a healthy weight is to surround yourself with people who have a similar focus and who are similarly concerned about what they eat and about their lifestyle. And that can have a positive influence. And the converse of that is if you're surrounded by people who um, uh, do not have that concern, that it can be a negative influence. And so, I mean, it doesn't mean you get rid of all your friends or you judge people based on their weight status or that you, you stay away from people you care about because of their weight status. But it is to say that the people that you spend time with can influence your own behavior when it comes to your weight. Yeah, and I think the community aspect can be so beneficial for people. I think in our country, especially, we kind of think that we have to tackle everything on our own and do everything individually. But I'll have clients who will say, my partner's not really on board with the changes I'm making. And so I have a community inside a membership site where there's people making similar changes. But even outside of that, maybe it is that you go to a fitness studio and you're not using it for weight loss, but there you have a community of people who are kind of like-minded or you have a friend who you can chat about your changes with. It is really important, I think, to have support throughout your weight loss journey. And I don't think that's over, I, I don't think that's emphasized enough. Yes, right. And, and I think that's a good take-home message 
from this research? Yeah. We kind of touched on the idea of health halos, um, but I'd love if you could define what is a health halo, for example, gluten-free on a package, and how can those be misleading? Yeah, well, you know, we, we see these health halos all the time. They're buzzwords, marketing words we see on foods all the time. Things like natural, light, gluten-free, we talked about that, organic, cholesterol-free. You know, we all see these terms uh, sort of stamped all over foods uh, that we see in the supermarket. And the research shows that when these, and, and the reason the manufacturers use these terms is because research shows that they can influence our perceptions of these foods and skew our perceptions of these foods. And, and that includes when it comes to our weight. There was a, some research I talk about in the book where researchers stopped uh, shoppers in a mall and asked them to sample uh, cookies, I believe in chips and yogurt. And one set of these cookies and chip, chips and yogurt were just, were labeled didn't have a label at all. And the other, and they said, okay, we'll try this, these other cookies and chips and yogurt. And these were labeled organic. That was the only difference. And then the people were asked, please estimate the number of calories. And lo and behold, the people estimated that the organic foods had fewer calories than the non-organic foods, even though they were ex all exactly the same and just had a different label. And so what this research uh, showed is that we can often believe certain things about foods just because they have these labels. In this case, that maybe foods have fewer calories because they're, they have one of these labels, organic or natural or light on them. And so this can be very misleading and cause us to uh, believe that foods that are not healthful actually are healthful or to overeat foods that uh, are, have these labels on them because we wrongly perceive them to be lower in calories. So we, the point here is that we need to be very aware of these labels and how they can deceive us and essentially to ignore them when we're trying to figure out what foods to consume. Mm -hmm. Organic non-GMO chips are still chips, right? <laughs> right. Junk food is still junk food, regardless of what kind of label it has on it. Right. And I guess that could be really reassuring to someone. I mean, if you prefer a regular Lay's potato chip, having a small bowl of those every so often, rather than the ones that kind of taste like cardboard, they may actually satisfy you and cause you to eat fewer because you're actually, you know, indulging that treat, that craving and instead of eating a whole bag of the ones that don't taste as good to try to get that same uh, satisfaction. Yes, exactly. I love how you get into the importance of strategic planning, you call it, for weight loss. Can you touch on that a bit more? Yeah, so this is the idea that uh, all of us, all of us, no matter what, are going to have challenges when it comes to weight control. Nobody ever, had, you know, avoids bumps in the road and, and challenges and and problems along the way. So the idea of strategic planning is how do we prepare ourselves to deal with those inevitable challenges? You know, I, I like to think of it uh, as sort of automatic responses to things that we anticipate coming up, sort of like auto technology that, you know, when, if, our, if we start veering off of the, in, out of the lane that the car automatically is pulled back into the lane without our having to do anything. And I think I, I like to think of strategic planning as the same thing so that we anticipate and try to prepare for challenges that we're going to have. So for example, if you're somebody that when you're at the store and you're in the checkout line and you see and you're tempted by stuff in the check candy and other foods uh, in the checkout line to get some M&Ms or to get candy bars or whatever it is, then you're prepared for that. You know it can happen. So you're prepared with um, what psychologists call an implementation intention. That is an if-then statement. So if I'm in line and I'm tempted by these things, then I will do X. So you're prepared. You know you're going to check your email. You're going to 
uh, listen to something, uh, you know, uh, or make a phone call, whatever it is, so that you know that you're, you won't follow through on that urge to do those things. If you know, for example, that you tend to engage in emotional eating, then you ask yourself, okay, you go through a checklist. Am I really hungry? If I'm really hungry, then I will eat a light, uh, healthful snack. If I'm not really hungry, then I will go for a walk. I'll call a friend. I'll listen to music. So you go through a whole list of things, anticipating problems we're going to have, things that are going to derail us, and being prepared with a strategy to deal with those so that we don't have to uh, rely on willpower, but we can rely almost on automatic responses that we've come up with and automatic strategies to deal with those uh, issues that will arise. And I love how you touch on the idea that if someone's not actively trying to lose weight, that person is doing things to maintain their weight. And I say, you know, it's a lifelong thing. I'm doing all of the things that my clients are doing to maintain a healthful lifestyle and a healthful diet. It never ends. So that's another problem with these fad diets is we are taught to only do them for a short time. And then we go back to typical habits that we did prior. But I just think that's such a great point to really solidify is that the things you're going to be doing to lose weight are pretty much the same things you're going to be doing forever to maintain your weight. And we're all doing that. And we all are imperfect. And we're always going to kind of have things come up that we have to deal with. Right. And I think part of that too, is knowing that when you do slip, when you do, you know, have challenges because of family or because of whatever you're dealing with or a job or whatever else is going on in your life, it's okay if you uh, slip or if you fall off the horse. But that's also part of a if-then statement. It's if I slip, then I will keep going. I'm not going to give up and say I'm a failure because this week or this month things haven't gone as I had hoped. You say, okay, it's been a tough week. It's been a tough month, but I'm going to get back on the horse and keep riding. And I think that's another implementation intention, as I say, to have an if-then statement. If things, if I slip, then I'm not going to say I'm a failure. I'm going to just keep going. And I think that's important. Studies show that people who have that kind of attitude and that kind of strategic planning are more successful uh, in the long run than the people who don't. Just to kind of wrap up, I'd love if you could share, just if someone's listening, how can that person spot misleading weight advice and avoid being duped into wasting more time, money, and energy on stuff that just doesn't work? Well, I, in the book, I give a list of things. I can mention a few, if you'd like, of some of the most common sort of warning signs, as it were, that we, things we see. Certainly, if when people see over-the-top language, you know, uh, lose 30 pounds in 30 days, it's a secret, it's a miracle, anything like that, uh, ignore it, because uh, odds are, if it's, too, if it's too good to be true, it is. Mm -hmm. So I think certainly over-the-top language, don't be swayed by that. Um, Another thing I recommend is do not be swayed on social media by celebrities and by people on social media. We talked earlier about the power of social media to influence people's behaviors when it comes to weight loss. And, you know, just because a celebrity looks beautiful, has a perfect body um, and says that their regimen has been great, that doesn't mean that actually it worked for them even or certainly it'll work for you. And so that's not a good source of information. Um, you know, I think we see often on some of these diets and diet pills before and after pictures, uh, the, uh, you know, and testimonials. Again, a lot of those are fake uh, or they're airbrushed or the testimonials are made up. So, again, I think it's really not a good idea to put, put any stock in those. Um, I also think that um, even if 
something, if you hear on, in, on a news report or elsewhere that something, a study shows something is true about eating a particular food or following a particular diet, ask more questions. Don't just take it at face value, even if it seems legitimate. So ask, for example, if it's a study, um, try to find out. And, and if it's not there, then consider that a red flag. How many people were actually studied? Who was studied? How long were they studied? You know, where was the research conducted? Was it in animals or people? On and on and on. So I think it's important to have these kinds of details and not to base your uh, decisions just on headlines saying that diet X or food X uh, is good for weight control. Um, mm -hmm. I think we need to, to dig more and ask more questions before uh, jumping to any conclusions. Yeah. The final question I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? To me, a health, health investment is trying to do something each day, and we're not going to be able to do necessarily a lot every day, but in what five areas. So the big areas for me are what we put in our bodies, that is our diet, moving our bodies, uh, getting enough sleep, managing our stress, and connecting with other people. And if we can do even just a little bit each day or something in, in one of those areas, over time, there's going to be uh, dividends. And so I think, cause you know, we think about it, we talk a lot about health and, but I like to tell people we're not doing this just for the sake of better health. There's a reason for doing this. And that is to enhance our sense of well-being and to improve the enjoyment of our lives. And if we make these investments, these small investments consistently over time, we can have better lives. And we have to stay focused on that because that's in the end, what this is all about in, in making those investments. So it will pay dividends for a better life. Mm, I love that. I love those five areas too. So important sleep and stress management and community as well. Where can listeners follow and find you and buy your book? They can uh, go to my website, which is healthyskeptic.com. And there they can see more information about this book and the previous books I've written. And also uh, I have created a bunch of short videos on many of the topics we've talked about today and other topics. So I invite listeners to go check out those videos on healthyskeptic.com. Awesome. I love that. I was watching some of those. Those are great. Thank you. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. I know that this is going to be just a gold mine for my audience. And I'm so appreciative of your time and just your wisdom that you shared with us today. Thanks a bunch, Robert. Thank you, Brooke. It's really been fun. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.